and I'm recording on March 16th, 2023. And today I'm excited to have Peter St. Ange on the show. I actually had the privilege to host a Mises Caucus um, Ask an Austrian episode with him a while back. And um, now I figured I'd bring him on to talk about the current banking crisis that's going on across, it, it now appears, the globe. Um, and I haven't been able to track it as closely as I'd like to. So I'm come, kind of coming in ignorant. Um, and I want to approach this uh, as if the audience has no background in Austrian business cycle theory and kind of build from the ground up um, to give some background for you guys. Um, but basically, I've, I've been really busy. And that's why I haven't been producing as many podcasts. And it's it actually explains the attire, too, because I've been um, working at the Montana Capitol here. Uh, and in, in my off time, I've also been working uh, on Defend the Guard legislation. And I'll provide some updates for you guys on social media as we go. Um, basically, we're trying to get it reintroduced uh, in the Senate now since it failed in the House. And, and S Senator Fuller is willing to carry it. Um, but yeah, as I've been tracking foreign policy, it appears that uh, monetary policy issues are um, becoming a problem again. And uh, I hope to actually discuss maybe the interplay between both monetary and foreign policy later with with Peter. Um, but welcome to the show, Peter. It's it's awesome to finally have you on my my own podcast. Yeah, thanks, Liam. It's great to see you again. Yeah, well, why don't you introduce yourself for the audience who who might not know who you are? Sure, I'm Peter Saint Ange. I am an economist at Heritage, a fellow at the Mrs. Mises Institute. I'm a former professor in Taiwan and a former bartender all over the world. That was really my vocation, but I missed it. Yeah, well, uh, I don't I don't really know where to start with this topic. Um, I, I guess I kind of want to approach this like from a place of ignorance and and assume that our audience doesn't really know anything about Austrian business cycle and um, the relationship of bonds, loans, and regular uh, deposit accounts um, to all of this. So from the ground up, where would you say uh, the audience needs to start? Um, how does interest rates and, and Federal Reserve policy play into what we're seeing right now? Yeah, so in a normal sort of economy where the government doesn't get involved, it's pretty intuitive, right? People make stuff, if it's successful, then they grow. If it's not successful, then they go out of business. And if more people are making stuff than going out of business, then the economy grows. And so this is healthy. This is fine. We should leave it alone. Of course, the government cannot leave it alone because it has power and power is profitable. And so what they often will do is to intervene and essentially try to uh, force interest rates low. The reason they do that is to make borrowing cheap and they want borrowing to be cheap so that you get more businesses start and more people can borrow money. In the short term, this is nice. You know, it can create jobs. Of course, in the medium term, that's then all of that extra money is going to lead to inflation. Once you start to get inflation, if the government stays where it is, the inflation will keep compounding and get worse and worse. That starts to destroy everybody's life savings. It also is really bad for the economy itself. So it'll cancel. You actually go to a negative result. And so in order to avoid that, what governments have to do or what um, 
central banks have to do is to then raise interest rates to sort of cancel the easy money, right? And so that that pattern of first lowering the interest rates, getting this boom, it kind of looks like a tissue fire. Like it burns real bright, but it doesn't burn for long. So you lower them to get this boom and then you raise them, you end up kind of crushing the economy in order to cancel out the inflation. That's what gives us the business cycle. And we see that time and again. And, you know, the business cycle, I mean, it's been known that central banks do that for hundreds of years. The first time was the late 1600s. It happens again and again. In the U.S., we had three central banks that were all eventually closed because they did the exact same thing, which is they caused this big tissue fire boom. Then you get this bust where the economy crashes. And very often in that bust, you get bank failures. And the reason is that in the boom phase, the banks overextended. They basically created money that didn't actually exist. In other words, they, they, they you know, put out little tokens, but they don't actually have the gold or whatever's backing it. Uh, and so you end up having, you know, sort of lurching from crisis to crisis. And the reason that matters, uh, Bob Higgs wrote a book called Crisis and Leviathan, where he detailed that each one of these boom bust crash cycles leads to a ratchet up in the amount of government interference in the economy. And so when you look at that over time, you know, typically the government ratchets up two steps every single crisis. It comes back down one plus two again, minus one plus two again. And so over time, we get the economy that we have today, which is pretty close to totalitarian. You know, about half of your everything you earn goes to the government in one form or another. The government then uses that money to hire a bunch of bureaucrats who sit around dreaming up new ways to ruin your life. So we have this this very unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. And in this crisis, I mean, for, for months, um, the Federal Reserve has claimed that they are pursuing a soft landing um, while also trying to fight inflation as if these things can happen simultaneously. Um, can you talk about the interplay there um, and and where you see this as heading? Uh, do you do you foresee that these this crisis is going to um, I, I mean, do you think that this is the tip of the iceberg? Do you think that the bank run that we saw with Silicon Valley Bank is the start of a of a larger crisis or do you think that they're going to patch it up with with more inflation yeah i think that we are probably going to see higher inflation we could see a bout of deflation along the way which is basically because businesses or financial institutions default when they default then credit sort of evaporates right it, it people thought that they had a loan owed to them but now that loan has essentially vanished because whoever was going to pay it is gone. So you can get bouts of deflation, but I think going forward, the pattern here is going to be a return to the kind of inflation that we saw last year. So closer to 10%. And, you know, of course the Fed is hoping that it's going to be a soft landing, meaning that, you know, when they cancel out that tissue fire, it's going to be nice and calm. And according to Austrian business cycle theory, which, by the way, is really a continuation of about 500 years of mainstream economic thought. Um, so, you know, so-called mainstream economics is the sort of freak in the corner who's got these weird ideas. That's all based on Keynesian socialism. 
Austrian really, I think, deserves to be called the mainstream. This is the, the evolution uh, going back 500 years. And so under Austrian theory, the recession itself, it's not just that the Fed raises rates and that, you know, crushes things in the aggregate, right? Like every, everything that happens in the Austrian version of the world, it is some person doing something, right? And so it's called methodological individualism. When you zoom down to the individual level, what determines how bad a recession is going to be fundamentally is how many businesses go bust, right? And so there's a lot of elements to that. So if the government is bailing people out here and there, then you're going to get a lighter recession. But of course, where did that money come from? The answer is, you know, government doesn't have any money. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't do anything productive. Everything it has, it took from you. So if the government is bailing people out, fundamentally, it's, it's uh, sort of diluting the existing dollars, like pouring water into wine. Uh, and so, you know, all of the dollars in your bank account, uh, if you're on fixed income, your wealth is essentially being siphoned. It's like siphoning, you know, gasoline from a tank. So all of that bailout money is being siphoned from you. Okay, so it's not, it's not of course, good if the government is bailing people out. But the end result is that it could mean a less extreme recession. And then a second question is just what did COVID do? You know, COVID was a, not COVID, but the lockdowns were extremely disruptive. There were a lot of businesses that went bust. What we don't know is how much of the dead wood was already cleaned out because of that, you know, COVID episode. And so, you know, if we sort of look historically, we're quite likely to go into a pretty serious recession. The Fed jacked up rates the fastest that they've done it in 50 years. Normally, you would expect that that would lead to bank panics. We've already seen some. And that that would expect uh, that that would lead to a pretty brutal recession. In this case, there are some of those caveats, right? The government is much more willing to bail people out than in the past. That could take the edge off at the cost of impoverishing us. Uh, and then, of course, whatever happened after COVID, how much of those um, lousy companies are already gone? Before we go on and, and talk about like the fundamentals at Silicon Valley Bank and these these other banks that have failed, um, can can you talk a little bit more about how interest r rates drive coordination of of the economy and why when the Federal Reserve does raise interest rates, it it uh, makes people um, maybe pull their money from investments and and stuff like that. How what what is the interplay there? Um, because for me, it's hard for me to imagine how bonds are the inverse of that. And, and I think a lot of people, uh, in order to understand the context of the Silicon Valley Bank, um, they need to understand how interest rates coordinate behavior over time. Right. So interest rates are probably the single most important price in the entire economy. They are essentially the price of time. And a lot of sort of mainstream commentators get confused. They think that interest rates are, are, are measuring money. They are not. The, the, the purchasing price of a dollar is measuring the value of a dollar. So, you know, if one dollar will buy you two candy bars, then that is the price of a dollar. The interest rate, like if you're paying 2% or 5% on your money, that is measuring the value of time. And that comes out of something called time preference, which is that people prefer something now rather than something later. And so, you know, humans have a sort of innate time value. Typically, if we look over history over, you know, we have like a thousand year record of interest rates across Europe before central banks came in and screwed up the numbers. 
that number seems to be about three or five percent. So those are kind of built in. <clears throat> now, what happens is that if you and and because of that three and five percent, you end up where a certain amount of stuff is consumed, right? Because people want to enjoy it today, and then a certain amount of stuff is going to be saved for later, and that savings will typically get deployed into investment because it's more productive to, to lend it out for something useful. And so that gives you kind of the dynamic of the economy. So, you know, two thirds or something of everything we produce is used today. And then a third of it might go into uh, investment <clears throat> and savings. And so when governments intervene in that, right, if, you know, the natural rate of 3% leads to that kind of an allocation, if, if a government comes in and tries to push that down to 2%, then money starts to move from one to the other, okay? And you start to get like an economy that's sort of top heavy. Uh, and, you know, if the government then has to come back later and ramp those rates back up to 4%, well, now resources start flowing the other direction. And so you get these, you can almost think of it like uh, water in a bathtub that's splashing back and forth. So the economy on its own, it's not moving huge pools of money around. It's not wiping out thousands of businesses all at once unless you screw with that one single most important number, which is telling you how much do people prefer consumption today versus consumption tomorrow. Now, a lot of people, I think, discovered over the last couple of days that banks do not actually need to keep your money. Um, and I, I'm wondering how, how this works into this. And, and, and can you just explain how fractional reserve banking and the idea that when you deposit your money, they can uh, put them in securities or in, in loans, depending on um, long-term you know, um, predictions. Uh, how, how does that work into what we're seeing with Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah, so I think the simplest is if we sort of sketch out what an economy would look like that was completely free market, right? So what would free bank, free market banking look like? And I think what it would look like is that you would have two categories of money that you're putting in the bank. You'd have one category, which is a demand deposit. That's what most people think of their bank account. A demand deposit, you can take that out at any time, right? You can walk right to the ATM and you can take your money out of the bank. It is, from the bank's perspective, it is a debt to you, okay? And you can call that debt at any time, all right? And then you've got another category of savings, which are time savings. So most people know this as a CD, a certificate of deposit. And in the case of a CD, you're essentially lending the money to the bank for, let's say, one month or three months or one year or whatever. You typically get a better interest rate on CDs, all right, because your money is locked up. And so in a free banking system, right, today, by the way, about 20% of money is in checking accounts. In other words, that's money that people expect to, you know, want to use in their future. About 80% of money is in savings account. And so we can infer that in a free market system, what would happen is roughly 20% of the money would be in that uh, demand deposit pool. And there, the customer is basically warehousing their money in the bank. They're storing their money in the bank, but they expect that money to be there for them whenever they want it. And then the other 80% of money is effectively lent to the bank. And there, you know, if you've got a three-month CD and you need the money tomorrow, then you got to find another way, right? Because the bank doesn't owe you, even though, yes, it's your money, but you lent it to the bank for three months. So, you know, you got to go use the credit card uh, or whatever. 
So in a free market banking system that worked like that, you would have full reserve. So the deposits, the demand deposits would be fully backed by cash, right? If you're, if you, the bank are telling the customer that their money is there, the money better darn be there. All right. So the demand deposits would be fully backed with cash, not with bonds, not with gold. We'll get into that later in the thing um, because those things fluctuate, right? Cash. If the bank account is listed in cash, then the backing asset should also be cash. So that'd be about 20%, meaning about four, four and a half trillion. And then the other 80%, the part that's in the CDs, the part that is paying a better interest rate and that is on a term, right? So in other words, it's a time deposit. Those would continue to be lent out, right? So in a free banking system or in a free market banking system, without you know, FDICs, without the Fed uh, intervening, that's the kind of economy you would have, right? You would go to the bank, you put some of your money in long-term savings, they would lend that out, and the part of your money that you keep in a demand deposit, the cash would be there. That is a perfectly stable system. Uh, if the bank screws up and nobody has faith in them, well, the CD holders can't do anything about it because they lent the money on term. The demand depositors may come in and take their cash, in which case the bank will get smaller, but it's not going to go bankrupt, right? In other words, you know, they have a billion dollars in demand deposits. They have a billion dollars in cash. If all the people come to take the billion dollars out, then the bank is not in good shape. They are smaller than they were yesterday, but they are not bankrupt. There are no bank runs in that system because it's fully stable. Everything that can immediately be taken out is backed. So that's the ideal. Now, what do we have today? <laughs> and what we have today is that the banks pretend that all of your money is demand deposit. Uh, the almost all money is either checking and savings and our current system, checking and savings are both demand deposit. You can go and take all your money out. But the banks, uh, they don't have the money. Right. So you, the customer, are under the impression that your money is sitting there like it's in a warehouse, uh, but actually the money is not there. And so they move heaven and earth to try to deceive and gaslight. And literally, many jurisdictions have cr they have made it a crime to cause a bank run. In other words, if you tell people that the bank is technically bankrupt, which it is because it owes you money immediately and it doesn't have that cash immediately, that is the definition of bankruptcy. But if you communicate to that, that to people in many jurisdictions, we here are talking about in the abstract. If you communicated about a one specific bank, that is literally a crime in many jurisdictions, which is insane. But the reason is because the banks, the you know Treasury, Fed, the entire edifice does not want you to know that the money is not there. So why do they do that? Why do they, you know, double count money and pretend that it's there when it's not? Because they can do something called fractionally reserve. All right. The individual bank, it takes in your thousand dollars. In theory, it puts, say, a hundred dollars in the vault and then the other nine hundred dollars it lends out. And when you zoom out and you have that process with every bank, right? So whoever, whoever you give that 900 to, the guy who fixes your fence, he then goes to his bank and his bank puts, you know, what, 90 away and it lends out the other 810. The next guy puts 81 away, lends the rest, et cetera. By the time you're done with that, 
you get about 10 times or 20 times the money created. So effectively, the banks become licensed counterfeiters. And the cost of it is that the only way that the thing can work is if the banks are always operating in technical bankruptcy. Yeah. So and and basically, I think Mises and money and credit does claim that this is essentially legalized fraud, Um, that that two people have claim to the same exact money. So um, legally, it is an impossibility legally and economically. It is an impossibility because if both people were to go to the bank and, and ask for their money, the bank would not be able to do anything. Um, right. but, to, but today, um, it, it appears that the Federal Reserve um, is trying to be like a, a backstop to this process, and they are willing to yes. um, now pay back all depositors. So I, I guess before we get into the specifics there, what, what exactly happened with Silicon Valley Bank? Um, were, they, were they lending out people's deposits and um, putting them in risky assets or, or securities? Uh, what, what exactly happened here that made them insolvent? Yeah, so they were uh, Silicon Valley Bank was sort of a country club bank for Silicon Valley types. And, you know, if you were small fry, if you were like a startup and you just got your first million dollars in funding, they wouldn't necessarily even return your call. Right. They'd be like, ah, come back when you're bigger. All right. These guys were for the elite. And so that meant that about 97 percent of their deposits were large accounts. Okay, they were not mom and pops meaning that they're not covered um, by FDIC insurance. So we'll, that's, that's kind of the context here. That's why, uh, you know, in Washington, they seem to be bending the rules for them. Now, it's true that Silicon Valley Bank, they had a bunch of shenanigans. They were, it seems that they were lending against equity. They were lending against yachts, which is pretty weird. They were playing ball, being cooperative, being helpful to their customers in terms of the collateral. And that's true for a lot of banks. A lot of banks uh, do play those games. They have an incentive to seek risk because the risk is covered by the taxpayer. Apparently, we have now, <laughs> we have now had that lesson um, reemphasized. So, yes, they were playing games. But the thing is, that's not what brought them down. What brought them down was fundamentally the fact that so most banks today, the money in their vault in other words, their reserves, those are not held in cash. They're held for the most part in bonds. And generally, they're held in long bonds, like 10, 20, 30-year bonds. The reason is that longer bonds pay better. So most that, that, that's the overwhelming chunk of what we would think of as in their vault. And so the problem there is that the Fed, you know, just over the past year, they've raised interest rates at the fastest pace in 50 years. That was very unexpected. The Federal Reserve was telling everybody, you know, inflation is going to be transitory. It's going to be no problem. We're not going to raise rates. And so the banks relaxed. They relaxed too much. And so in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, what they did was they had bought a whole bunch of long bonds all at once. And they more or less bought at the peak. And so over the past year now, bond prices have come down about 20 percent. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, because their timing was so bad, their bonds had actually come down closer to 40%. So instead of having a dollar in the vault, like they thought, they now had you know, 60 cents in the vault. There's going to be a lot of banks that have 80 cents in the vault. So the FDIC, just in December, 
they estimated that there are about $620 billion of unrealized losses uh, in, in banks. And that's only includes what they can see, of course. Uh, that's also what that's four months ago now. And we've had more of the same since. So the, the sort of issues, you know, I think both parties want to focus on the tech bros and, you know, the whining and dining. And, uh, you know, Tucker's been upset that Signature Bank had a bunch of goofy woke crap. All true, but those are more or less decorative. The main problem here is that the Federal Reserve, number one, that we even, you know, have this system of fractional reserve where all the banks are permanently, and it is all the banks, uh, they're permanently operating a state of technical uh, bankruptcy. And then into that, uh, they threw this massive interest rate hike that then pushed them off the cliff. When I say all of them, incidentally, Caitlin Long down in Wyoming, right next door for you guys, she had tried to open a full reserve bank and she was refused. So the powers that be will forbid you to run a sound bank. And the reason, of course, is that if you run a sound bank, then that makes it <laughs> starts to draw customers in from the unsound bank and the whole party ends. In what way did they refuse? Like, how did they pre prevent her from operating? You have to get licenses from a whole bunch of regulators. And I believe it was the OCC, the uh, control of the currency, who they simply said no. It was either them or the Fed. But uh, yeah, you've got to get licenses from a bunch of regulators. And if, if, if just one of them doesn't like you, they don't have to give the reason. They say no. Dang. Well, on, on the point about uh, a lot of people are blaming like uh, either these woke companies, the tech bros or the the climate change companies or whatever. It's right. almost like you can imagine these backdoor deals. I, I don't believe this is the case, but the more cynical and uh, conspiratorial part of me believes there's these backroom deals where they're like, all right you are going to be very picky with who you allow to work with your bank. And uh, we are all going to um, engage in fractional reserves because we all profit from it. And this is a cartel. Uh, and then when, when it all um, goes to hell, we're going to blame <laughs> uh, whether it's uh, wokeism, ES, or I guess ESG is a serious problem, but um, we'll blame wokeism and we'll blame uh, climate change rather than um, the serious issues at play. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Especially right. after like um, we had like the, the wall street protests after 2007 mm -hmm. and 2008, it's like, like no one seems to be focusing on, on the serious issues here. That we're, we're divided. Yeah. And that was, you know, I had a lot of hope uh, during Occupy wall street, the Occupy folks and the tea partiers had the same point of view. Right. There was a lot of stuff in common. What should have happened is that the Tea Partiers and the you know, Bernie Bros should have been able to get together, uh, effect reform, dethrone the elitists. Neither of us liked them one bit. Right. And, you know, of course, what happened instead is that I think the establishment here, I'm with Tucker on his uh, assessment of it, that the establishment successfully divided the people. Uh, you know, they want to claim people are, you know, racist or uh, whatever, and they they succeeded at that. People still bought it back then. I think most people, unfortunately, still buy it now. Yeah. And then you you would mention that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates quickly, like it, uh, at a historic pace. And this goes to a point that I think is often overlooked by um, Austrians is 
uh, we criticize the low interest rate period, but um, we're opposed to the Federal Reserve setting interest rates altogether. Uh, even right. the raising of interest rates, they don't know how fast um, they should do it. It's an impossibility. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's an impossibility right. because they can't know um, what the rate of interest should be naturally. Right. Right. And, you know, probably, you know, again, if we look back to a thousand years of history, probably the uh, natural rate of interest, if you have no inflation, would be something like three or five percent. If you didn't have a central bank, you would have no inflation. Uh, Inflations are only created by central banks uh, and then licensed fractional reserve, which comes out of central banks as well. So, right. The the sort of natural rate is probably something like, uh, I don't know, three, three and a half percent real or something like that. But the problem in the current and and by the way, current interest rates are of course negative, right? So you know the Fed rate is what four and three quarters, and inflation is six percent. So actually, money is free, money is negative. So they are obviously still far too low uh, in terms of sort of what's natural. But the issue here, and you know the reason why I would criticize the Fed rate hikes, is because. You know, they they screwed it up by going to zero. And in order to get back to what the sort of natural non-interventionist rate would be, you have to go slow. If you ramp it up too fast, if you try to jump all the way back up, that is specifically what sets off that cascade of collapses that, you know, we have a term for it. It's a recession. So, you know, by ramping them up, the Fed intentionally set off a recession. What they should have done is ramp it up slowly. Of course, they couldn't do that because they were so deep in the hole at zero. In fact, for a minute there, rates were about zero and inflation was, what, 7%? At negative 7% money, that's a heck of a hole to dig out of. So the fundamental problem was that they went into that hole so hard, so deep, that their only option was to jump out of it as far as as fast as possible. That is well known to be exactly how you get a recession. So what Austrians would 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 say, I think, is if you find yourself with a below market interest rate, get out of it slowly, and then quit doing it. <laughs> get out yeah. of the interest rate setting business. So can you can you paint that picture? Um, unpack that a little more. Uh, for people who who don't understand the mechanics of inflation and interest rates very well, uh, why is it the case that when you have inflation at seven percent and interest rates at effectively zero, why why is money why do we say that it's a negative interest rate? Right. So let's say you have a hundred dollars today, and I'm going to pay you three percent interest on it. Right. So you're going to have one hundred and three dollars tomorrow. Now, if inflation is one percent, then your hundred and three tomorrow or next year it's only going to buy 102 worth of stuff, right? So whatever you would plan to spend that money on, it's only going to buy 102. So you take the 3% I'm giving you, you subtract the 1% inflation, and that's what's called your real rate of return or your real interest rate. Now, if interest rates are zero and or 0.25%, if interest rates are basically zero and inflation is 7%, that means that uh, I can borrow a hundred bucks and I'm and and I only have to give you $93 worth of stuff next year. So, I mean, indeed, I did that. Uh, as soon as I saw those interest rates, I went out and bought a giant house. I bought more house than I can afford because it was free. It was <laughs> they were they were paying me for the money. They were literally paying me four percent a year, 
you know, the difference between inflation and my mortgage, they were giving me 4% of the house for free. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, obviously the, the housing market then, um, appears to have a lot more value than there, there is really there. So like the, the, the reason that the housing market, uh, appreciates and, and people kind of expect that reflexively, like you right. might my family, they're like, well, let's just buy a house because the next 10 years it'll appreciate. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't be so certain this is just a constant in, in nature um, because they're not actually improving the value of their house. They're not building onto it or anything like that. Um, is that analysis correct or, or would you disagree with that? Yeah. I mean, over about a hundred year period, houses go up in value about 1% over inflation they're really relatively hard. Uh, they're not as hard as gold, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, you can live in a house. You can't live in gold. So, you know, there is that. There's pros and cons. Um, but right. And in, in the grand scheme, houses are not guaranteed to go up. They do depreciate. Houses themselves get old. Things break. Uh, they do lose value over time. On the other hand, the land tends to go up. But the land going up is largely simply because uh, population is growing and the country at large is growing. So, right, houses are certainly not guaranteed money, but in the grand scheme of hard assets versus soft assets, they're a B plus. So it'd be better to have hard assets and, and have real estate than having everything in paper money that isn't worth anything. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Gold, uh, Bitcoin, depending on your risk appetite, um, housing, hard assets, of course, the other thing would just be skills. I mean, skills, you know, still far and away are the, I mean, it's a tremendous ROI on like learning how to do something. Yeah. So, you know, particularly if you're not happy with what your job is at the moment, then getting, you know, spending 20 or 50 hours learning how to do something, I don't know, fix people's doors. I mean, there's, there's just a million things that people need done. And you can learn a lot of these things in about five minutes on YouTube. So, I mean, yeah. frankly, you know, in terms of, especially if you're younger, you know, if you're thinking about ROI, my God, learning how to do stuff, not education, right? Education is kind of a fiat government run hustle, but yeah. actually learning how to do things useful is, I mean, millions percent return on your investment. Yeah. Well, there, there's an argument there that even the, all of education, especially, especially the, the publicly funded and, and um, guaranteed education, the guaranteed payment, um, through government loans c contributes to this bubble as well. And, and sure. that might come crashing down eventually. Um, and I mean, that explains, we, we see a lot of people here in Montana really upset with like when universities cut certain liberal arts departments that uh, there is a lot of demand for. Um, but then you see the president or some weird new middle manager uh, that is added to some administration somewhere. And then um, they have like, a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in their salary every, every year. So it's like that, that explains why is, is that we, we don't really have a, a real profit and loss mechanism to determine where to allocate resources. And uh, For sure. yeah, yeah that, I think that's the fundamental issue with public ed while we were on that point, but uh, to, to no, uh, it, yeah, no, I was going to say, I think public education is probably, you know, if we rank the most evil institutions in the U.S., for me, it's 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 really neck and neck between the Federal Reserve and public education. Yeah, right. Um, I, I did a paper a couple of years ago. Uh, you have Flesh Kincaid scores. 
where you can assess the grade level of a text, right? So like, you know, if you've ever written a paper for class and you can do a flesh Kincaid on it, you say, okay, this is, you know, 13th grade, maybe that's a little bit high, depending on who your audience is or whatever. It's 13th grade being first year college and so on. Anyway, so you can do flesh Kincaid's. And I did flesh Kincaid's of uh, inaugural addresses, historical inaugural, address, inaugural addresses by the president. And remember, when the president is giving an inaugural address, he's appealing to what he thinks or what his speechwriters think is the common man. Okay, they are not talking to the faculty. They are not trying to impress anybody. They are trying to connect with the average voter. And so the Flesh Kincaid score is therefore an indirect reflection of how stupid the average American is. If you go back to 1900, before public education, okay, back then almost everybody was educated at home or they had parenting co-ops. They did have some religious schools. All right, so back then you had an average grade level of about, what, 13 or 14. In other words, the average American is what we now consider to be, uh, I think some of them were actually higher. Some of them, I think McKinley was like 16. This is literally PhD level, okay, graduate mm -hmm. level, was the average American. And it absolutely crashed in the, in the ensuing century of public schooling. By the time you get to... By, uh, I'm sorry, to Obama, it was eight and a half. All right. By the time you get to Trump, everybody said, ah, he's, you know, it's going to be stupid. He's going to appeal to, to, you know, whatever, rednecks. Okay, it was eight. Fair enough. And then you get to Biden. Biden is like five and a half. Literally, the level of public discourse in our country is fifth grade. Yeah. Not a joke. You can measure it. It is right there in the numbers. They are communicating as if they are fifth graders. And moreover, you know, assuming for all of Biden's failures, I assume that his uh, communications directors and speech writers have a general sense of what's going to connect with voters. They're, you know, they should be decent uh, marketers. This is the the top of political marketing is, is working in the White House. And these people apparently believe that the average American intelligence is that of a fifth grader. These are voters, right? They're, they're not talking to children in this case. They think they're talking to adults. So really, I think, I mean, if we're talking about catastrophes in the nation, public education has is <laughs> immeasurable, immeasurable uh, well, damage. If, to the well, country. if there is any relationship, and I'm sure there's been a lot of work on this uh, between monetary policy and um you know, the degradation of, of education. I think it only affirms what uh, Jeff Dice has been talking about where, Absolutely. Um, you know, fiat currency uh, and, and economics is not just in some isolated silo. Uh, yep. it, it, it actually affects everything in society. So then if we have fiat currency, we also have fiat education. We have fiat culture. We have fiat intelligence. That's we have exactly. Fiat, yeah. Everything. So. And, 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 you know, it's dangerous because um, money pretty much across the board, it's, it's kind of the least approachable segment of economics. Like it does take a lot of work to figure out how the heck this weird thing works. It's not as obvious as, you know, just the supply and demand curve. You know, you get a job, uh, you do well, people offer you more work, you can raise your, you know, those are all pretty intuitive. Money is kind of the hardest topic. So if you've got a country of fifth graders and you're trying to hustle them, Boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, well, they seem to be doing a good job. I mean, yes, so they are. To, to get back to this uh, um, 
scandal with the the bailouts, um, they they were able to convince, it seems, a lot of people that um, bailing out Silicon Valley Bank uh, was effectively just um, only bailing out the depositors, and that's okay because <clears throat> they're depositors. Right. They're they're just uh, everyday people. But as you said earlier, um, was it ninety seven percent were um, not Large. covered by the FDIC. Um, right. And that means then that 97% were above um, the $250,000 maximum the FDIC covers, correct? Yeah. And, and keep in mind that's 250 per account. So if you're a rich guy with a brain, you split up your money into multiple accounts. You could have 100 accounts. Yeah. And therefore you would be covered, what, 25 million. So, yeah. right, 250,000 per account. So these are rich people. These and are basically, not people. And yep. basically they're claiming that this is an emergency decision that only applies to a narrow amount of banks. Right. Or, because I, I've heard there's some speculation and um, people are of course trying to come up with where this leads. They're saying that there, there's a fear that if they only bail out these banks, there will be a rush toward these banks because uh, that's the safest bank to be with if, if you're covered by the Fed. If the Fed essentially guarantees every every single dollar in, in the account um, and it doesn't extend that emergency option to all of these local and, and state banks, um, is it possible that they're trying to uh, manufacture bank runs to consolidate banks? Is, is that a fear of yours? Yeah, well, that was kind of a debate early on is what kind of message this sends and the context is that over the past 20 years, about half of the banks in America have disappeared. They've been gobbled up by the bigger banks. So our banking system is progressively concentrating, uh, by, particularly by the big four. And it was at Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan and um, Bank of America. There's one more in there. Anyway, so they're all consolidating these in these four. And that was a concern early on. What they apparently just changed the rules about two hours ago. We've been talking about it at Heritage, how, you know, apparently the new rules are there. Are, there are no rules. So the, the brand new rule is that you have to be a, quote unquote, systemic risk to get this outrageous privilege of having all of your rich customers completely covered by the non-rich uh, taxpayers. And of course, what's interesting there is that systemic risk includes all of the too big to fail banks. So those guys are in the lifeboat, as always. And it's also apparently an ad hoc designation. So they can just wake up, get all, you know, get out of bed and say, guess what? I had an epiphany overnight and this bank right here is a systemic risk. That's what they did with Signature Bank, one of the other failures. They reached in and said, hey, it's a systemic risk, even though it wasn't that big. And so what it's starting to look like is that, <laughs> I mean, I was surprised because normally they at least try to pretend not to be doing this. Uh, but it appears that they are specifically shaping this program to be a giant funnel to drain resources out of the regional and the community banks towards the huge banks. Why? Because the huge banks are very, very good partners with their regulators. They do everything regulators want. They are almost a branch of government at this point, similar to social media. You know, broadly speaking, and, and this is kind of a broader problem, when the government gets enough authority over the economy, every big company has to become part of government. They cannot piss off their regulators or that's the end of the gig. You'll lose your banking license. 
So they literally lie up late at night thinking, how can I make my regulator happy? So when people wonder, you know, why did they censor speech? Why do they, you know, do all this goofery with gender and whatnot? Because they're afraid of regulators. They, they are driving with a policeman in the mirror and, you know, there are no rules. It's just, does the regulator like you? If the regulator doesn't like you, they're going to find something. So, I mean, for people who currently have their money in the bank, um, I guess I, I don't want this to come off like fi Correct. financial advice or anything, but for yeah. people who currently have their money in the bank, is it actually better for them to be, at least in the short term, in those four larger banks? Like if someone's in Wells Fargo, or are they, I mean, technically, are they uh, better off than someone who's in a state and, and regional bank, given the current environment? Well, keep in mind, we're only talking people over 250 per account, right? So, okay. you know, like, of course, if if you're rich and you're worried, then break up your money into separate accounts. That is financial advice. <laughs> like, yeah. don't don't be a dummy if they're, if they're giving you free coverage, take it. Um, but having said so, right, for somebody who's in a situation where they're they're rich and they're not covered in a community bank, then un under the rules as of whatever, 2 p.m. today, Yes, they should switch over to a large bank. As of the rules tomorrow at you know 10 a.m., I have no idea. Yeah. Well, okay. And, and that's another thing I want to get to is just like the relationship with um, the current environment to the um, potential roadmap of installing an, a CBDC. Uh, yeah. I, th I think there is concern that if there is consolidation, uh, these four larger banks are more willing to accept a program like this. And I know there's fear about this fed now program that was announced, uh, that's supposed to start in July. Um, yeah. do you see that this is, that's where this is heading? Do you think that because they're between a rock and a hard place, like we discussed earlier, and they're, they're really just having to decide mm -hmm. between hyperinflation or letting things collapse. Um, do you think that they're trying to manufacture a, a third path, um, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's one of the sort of parlor games right now is figuring out what's the angle. The three banks uh, that have failed so far have all been crypto related, but they did not die because of crypto. So it's quite strange, right? So Silicon Valley Bank went down because their bonds lost value. Uh, signature is not entirely clear. Uh, they Barney Frank, who was sitting on the board of Dodd uh, Frank uh, fame, uh, he claims they weren't insolvent. And so it's, it's there's, I don't want to say conspiracy theory. And and anyway, at this point, if I say conspiracy theory, I, it, it's like a term of praise, <laughs> uh, given the performance of conspiracy theories over the past year. Um, but at any rate, there's a lot of speculation. Nick Carter at um, uh, Castle Island has uh, had some very interesting tweets. Uh, he has good sources and he's been speculating on that specifically. Uh, it's an open question, I think. Uh, what I do know is that Washington has been very, very interested in getting a CBDC installed. They love it because it'll give them Chinese-style control. Uh, it will also give them the ability to instantly centralize the banking system into bureaucratic hands, uh, because specifically because there is no counterparty risk if you put your money in the government. And so for regular people... That's going to be appealing, and they know that. So a CBDC, I think, is extraordinarily dangerous. It polls at almost nothing. 
like when they actually ask an opinion poll, somewhere between like like 80 and 95% of Americans don't want a CBDC. And this is cross-party. People on the left hate the idea. People on the right hate the idea. Nobody wants the CBDC. So you might ask, given that we allegedly live in a democracy, why in the hell are they even talking about CBDCs? Which is a mystery. So near as, and you know, I'm tight in it, fighting against it. I'm up in Washington frequently, talk to people in Congress. Nobody knows where this is coming from. Uh, there is no constituency for it. It is, to a certain extent, a swamp fart. Uh, there are a couple of senators who have been publicly supportive, such as Elizabeth Warren. Uh, but broadly speaking, it, it's like this zombie creature that, you know, it just keeps moving forward, even though nobody wants it. And they've been very effective at bringing people on board. They have, I <laughs> wish I knew who was funding it. Uh, mm -hmm. They have effective outreach programs. And I think that in this crisis, that is a concern that, you know, if you move the country towards a system where the government is effectively guaranteeing everybody's bank deposit, you are a big step closer to literally having all of your money be in some kind of government uh, panopticon, like, you know, some some large government account that the government can, can see, they can control. Uh, they can decide, you know, have you bought too much meat this week? Uh, would you like to explain what you need that gun for? Right. We can imagine a whole lot of scenarios where the government will abuse that. And a banking panic would be very useful if one wanted to implement the CBDC. Yeah. You mentioned that Elizabeth Warren is behind this and she has been just such an interesting case to watch. Um, it's just a psyop just living before us because um she presents herself like a man of the, or a woman of the people. And, and she's like, uh, you know, she's criticizing the banks and they need to be regulated. She's blaming deregulation um, on this crisis instead of fractional reserve banking or, um, and I mean, I, I would love it if she's like, yeah, there, there's one regulation we need and it's uh, we, we need to allow for a full reserve option. Um, like that makes sense to me, but she, she just, throws out this term uh deregulation and and no one really knows what she's referring to um, right people just repeat it and we have a similar case in montana um senator steve uh not steve danes um john tester he sits on the banking committee and if for people who are are questioning and and still think that this is a conspiracy and that dc doesn't want it um you can return to uh the talks between this committee and Jerome Powell when he's testifying in front of them. And he openly is discussing the, the consequences of a CBDC. And there's my Senator, uh, John Tester, just nodding along and not pushing back. Um, yeah. So it, it's a very real threat. And even in Montana, um, there's this bill. I actually want to read just one provision yeah. from it. It's, it's apparently it's a model bill that is being introduced across the country. Um, basically like they're, it's a universal commercial code bill that is supposed to standardize business across multiple states. Um, and it passed through the House and the Senate in South Dakota. And then Christy Nome vetoed it, um, which For is her, yeah. yeah, awesome. But it, it is going through Montana right now. Um, it passed through the House and it's just so deceptive because, I mean, it's a, I think it's a couple hundred pages at the least. Yeah. So they're buried uh, provisions. And I just want to read this one part because this is what's alarming people. It says, uh, so it's defining money as 
a medium of exchange that is currently authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government. The term includes a monetary unit of account established by an intergovernmental organization or by pursuant to an agreement between two or more countries. The term does not include an electronic record that is a medium of exchange recorded and transferable in a system that ex existed and operated for the medium of exchange before the medium of exchange was authorized or adopted by the government. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if one is, is that the, the Austrian, <laughs> I mean, it's not an Austrian. <laughs> I'm, not even, I'm not even going to phrase that question. I can get it seriously. Um, no, yeah. But uh, yeah, just react to that. And, and um, there, there are concerns that uh, maybe the, the people presenting this bill in the legislature here, they don't have any malicious intent and they might be hearing from on high that they have to present this. They don't know any better. Right. Yeah. But that it, it just lays the, um, the, the path ahead for a CBDC in the future. For sure it does. So though that chunk of text there was doing two interesting things. One of them is that they, they more or less wrote that to exclude Bitcoin. All right. So El Salvador uh, adopted Bitcoin as dual legal tender last year, two years ago, I guess it is now. And, you know, this uh, must not have existed before the government. OK, that whole convoluted phrasing is they may as well just written the word Bitcoin. Right? That is exactly what they're trying to exclude. Uh, the other part of what they're doing there is that they are defining money as something that has a government stamp of approval. That has never been the definition of money. Uh, governments worldwide have seized money, but money is whatever the heck you want it to be. If you are in a prison, money is cans of sardines and cigarettes. Okay, money is a human thing. There are government tokens, which people sometimes use as money, uh, sometimes because it's convenient and oftentimes because it is legally mandated, as is in the U.S., something called legal tender laws. They literally put a gun to your head and say, use my token. So, yes, I guess that's a form of money. Uh, it's kind of an evil money, but there you go. But the idea that we would write up a bill that, you know, defines out of existence any money that doesn't have, you know, a uh, government, a man with a gun backing it up, uh, that is extremely anti-liberty. Uh, and then, you know, sort of the cherry on top there is just that whole Bitcoin thing. Uh, you know, it's pretty obvious what this bill is trying to do. And, you know, the problem here is you want to be suspicious because why all of a sudden do we need a redefinition of money? Uh, OK, maybe you can argue, you know, some people don't like Bitcoin and then at least you can understand where they're coming from. But then what's up with all this government business written in there? I think people are right to raise concerns that this is trying to uh, smooth the way for the introduction of the CBDC. Now, a lot of the critics here, and, and we're pushing up against the hour, so I'm going to let you go soon, but a lot of the, the cri uh, critics of this bill are claiming that this will, I, I think they're just generally talking about the fear of CBDC, and they're saying that this yeah. bill will allow for a potential third party to spy on your account in the future. And then some people are shrugging this off and, and saying, well, no, there's no provision in this bill that allows for that. But is there a serious privacy, privacy concern here? Yeah, well, uh, right. And, and just to address that one point. So if there's no concern here, then as delicately as they phrased 
that Bitcoin exclusion uh, clause there. Well, okay, good. So go ahead and delicately phrase a CBDC exclusion clause, and then we'll believe you. Yeah. Um, but yes, with CBDCs, they are catastrophes. Uh, they would give bureaucratic surveillance control. That would be the end of the Fourth Amendment. You would uh, be ushered into a permissioned economy where you better hope bureaucrats like uh, what you do. They could cut you off from anything. Right today, if you say the wrong thing, then you know you go into Facebook prison or whatever for three days. Uh, under a CBDC, you could you know they could stop you from buying uh, electricity, phone service mortgage, uh, rent, um, uh, food. Okay, so it's absolute control. And then you've got the wider issues, which is that if you've got absolute government control, the money, they can cause the uh, like negative rates, right? They could, for example, tell you that if you don't use your money this week, then it's going to evaporate at 5% a week. So you all better get spending. They have a lot more leeway to manipulate the economy which means that the boom-bust cycles that we see today are likely to get much, much worse. And then, of course, you know, I mentioned earlier that a CBDC can drain all the deposits out of the commercial bank. Final point is that one of the reasons that they're selling CBDCs is to defend the dollar, right? We have to keep up with the Chinese. The Chinese have this, uh, you know, Stasi coin to surveil their population, and it's high tax, so we got to keep up. And the, the truth of that is the exact opposite. Right. Currently, the sort of native currency in the you know, crypto economy and everything having to do with crypto, with blockchains, which I do think are, are massive. They're, they're probably on the scale of databases. They are very significant innovations, decentralized databases, essentially. The native currency of that is not Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is not widely used in that. What's widely used are something called stable coins. Right. And a stable coin operates the same as a money market account has been around for 100 years. It's not mysterious. But the point in this context is that the share of stable coins, right, a stable coin, if you don't know, is just a crypto that it's always supposed to be worth like one dollar. OK, so you can use it like a dollar, but but the underlying architecture is crypto. Um, and what I think, well, yeah. So, um, you know, that's kind of the alternative. I think that's what they're trying to go after. And in stable coins today, the U.S. dollar share of global stable coins is 99.85%. All right. In other words, the U.S. dollar right now, without a CBDC, the U.S. dollar is taking over the world via crypto. So if a Nigerian and a Spanish person are trading something or, you know, uh, if a Spanish company is importing, you know, whatever, Nigerian fruit, they're going to do it with the U.S. dollar, not because they like the U.S. dollar, but because that's what stable coins operate in. Why? Because the U.S. dollar is most liquid. Okay, it's the cheapest to transact in. So the U.S. dollar is already winning the, you know, crypto based uh, payment world. If you put a CBDC in, what you're effectively doing is warning the existing stable coins. You're saying, you know, you guys might be illegal because we've got the government version. And, you know, the typical pattern historically is that once the government copies your product, you're probably going to be, <laughs> they're probably going to ban you pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, look at the post office, for example, right? You can't send a first class letter. It's literally illegal. So a CBDC actually lowers the value of the dollar, it attacks the dollar, it removes our 99.85% dominance. So it is um, absolutely destructive. Just about every selling point they have on the CBDC, 
It's doing the exact opposite. And so as an economist, I have to ask, why in the heck are you guys pushing it? Voters don't want it. Uh, it, it is harming everything that you claim it's going to do. Where, where's this coming from? Why are you guys obsessed with this? Yeah, I, I have one more question, just because you, you yep. mentioned that um, this is presented as a threat or a response to China's um, moves. And I think we see this common commonly where uh, China does something and we have to position ourselves in response to them the exact <laughs> same way. So if we think that they're the big threat, why like they're they're tyrannical against their people they're all the things we say they are so therefore we need to do the exact same thing so um i'm I'm curious about that just because you you said you taught in taiwan i did Um, okay i'm I'm curious about your perspective on um the overall interplay between foreign policy and monetary policy here because um it, it appears that we are seeing a a um uh, repositioning of, of global powers and, and the West is isolating itself as a result of both mm-hmm. foreign policy and monetary policy, uh, yeah. through sanctions regimes, through bombing countries. Uh, I think, you know, both Putin and G have pointed to our actions in Libya and Syria, and now the new sanctions against Russia as a reason why they need a new financial system separate from the U S and, you know, our military is dependent on the dollar in a way, and the dollar is dependent on the military because of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And so it, it's very complex. And I'm, I'm sorry to do this at, at the no, last no, no. No, the, no worries. Yeah. podcast, but I, I am very curious because um, we we are seeing a lot of this even at the local level at the legislature here. They're, they're uh, freaking out about China. But I, I always want to ask them is like, why, why then are we doing the exact same thing? We, we yeah. would put ourselves in a much better position if, if we were the shining city on the hill that the founders wanted us to be and absolutely. traded with yeah. countries. So I'm curious yeah. what you think. No, I absolutely agree. And, it, you know, just on the, uh, the China issue, I mean, the irony is that China does do a lot of things smart. <clears throat> that is why they are beating us economically. Uh, they have much less uh, regulation of business. They do not harass business the way we do. Uh, Our politicians and government often goes after business to chase uh, clickbait, basically. There are a lot of things that they do that are smarter uh, because they're freer. Uh, On the other hand, there's a lot of crap the Chinese do that is uh, sheer tyranny. So why is it that every time China does something tyrannical, we're supposed to look at that as a model. Every time that they have something that has less government interference, we just kind of pretend that didn't happen. Uh, so, you know, that kind of makes me doubt the uh, motives of the people who are using China as an example. But right. Your larger point, I completely agree with we if America wants to be strong, to, you know, be safe, to continue to protect ourselves, uh, to keep the dollar strong, to keep the economy strong, all of these. The best solution for that, in my opinion, would be to be, you know, essentially a giant Switzerland. Uh, We can be a model for the rest of the world. We pay attention to our own prosperity. Uh, You know, my back of the envelope, if we hadn't screwed with things since the progressive era, we'd probably be on the order of something like seven times richer. Uh, You would make $200 an hour at Starbucks. It's almost unimaginable for us uh, today. And, you know, the gap seven times richer is about the gap between Bolivia and the United States. So we, you know, by interfering in this, by trying to push uh, the empire, I think that we have done massive damage to ourselves. 
the involvement in foreign conflicts, you know, from Afghanistan to Lebanon to uh, to Ukraine now, the risk historically has been that we don't export democracy, we import tyranny, right? So the Patriot Act was, if we had been Switzerland, if we had been sitting up there on our hill being an excellent model for the rest of the world and not interfering in their affairs, then we would never have had a Patriot Act. The Patriot Act is disgraceful. It is, in my opinion, starkly unconstitutional. It, is, it has created this entire army of domestic police who uh, prey on Americans. Uh, I think our foreign entanglements have caused an enormous amount of erosion to our freedoms and to our prosperity. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And uh, I hope to keep pushing back against it. Um, and I, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, people yeah. are adopting this sunk cost fallacy, I think, that we're already here. So we, we also need to drag everyone down with us we, rather than... We, we can go home in a second. Look, yeah. we have a big army. We can leave. Nobody will stop us. We can come home. It would take one year and we'd be out of the business. Yeah. And then from that point, we can recover from whatever... Uh, economic disaster follows and and we can do it pretty quickly and then uh that shining city on the hill and the irony is that if we tell all of our allies that we're going home if we tell japan and germany and the rest of them we say hey listen fellas we're done (laughs) we've already paid at the office okay we're gonna go home you tell them that and they will shape up real fast you know they will uh increase their defense budgets heck we could sell them our weapons because we don't need them anymore uh, they would ship up real fast and they would take the burden. And rightly, they should. You know, Japan is next door to China. China is uh, not a pleasant neighbor. They have issues. They need help. We'll sell them the weapons. Happy for that yeah. uh, because we don't need them anymore. And aside from that, it is not our problem. It's been our problem for 100 years. It was never our problem, but it's certainly not our problem anymore. Yeah. There, I think Trump was accident was uh, not accidentally, was absolutely spot on. Uh, you know, Europe, Japan, the rest of these countries... I, I, I love Japan. I love Taiwan, but they need to handle their own business. Right. And they won't as long as we do it for them. Yeah. And that's uh, Donald Trump's response to Tucker Carlson's questionnaire the other day, I think was was spot on. And yep. um, yeah, he, he seems to be the most correct on it because uh, DeSantis yep. seems to be. Uh, DeSantis, I think, is getting better. He's getting better, but yeah. I, I'm afraid that it's a bait and switch where he's like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing it over here because we need to do it in Taiwan. Um, This is the thing about Trump is that you generally know where he stands and he does not, you know, once he goes down a path, he stays on it. And that's that's rare. Yeah. And I think he's also uh, because of how he's been treated. He's also um, (laughs) I think he's He's, driven to get rid of these people. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, he even said he called out Victoria Newland um, by name and said that uh, he called her a warmonger and said that by the end of his presidency, he's like, and he corrected himself. He's like, actually, before the end of my presidency, these people will be gone and the State Department will look a, a bunch different. Um, and the other thing here is that, uh, as you said, it'll it'll make our allies shape up, but it will no longer incentivize them to be belligerents um, because Absolutely. Uh, Poland, as we see, they're, they're sending F- F-16s to Ukraine now. Uh, that was announced today. And if they hadn't had our guaranteed support they wouldn't be doing that and also russia wouldn't be escalating because the u.s wouldn't be behind them absolutely ukraine and russia would have negotiated something Uh, i suspect uh that ukraine would have given up uh the russian-speaking areas 
And frankly, as Americans, I don't know why we care who runs the Donbass. Both Ukraine and Russia are comparably mismanaged and comparably undemocratic. And I, I, I really don't have an opinion which of those yeah. countries runs Donbass. Uh, I think the, tr the same is true for World War I. Uh, if the U.S. had not issued security guarantees, then uh, it wouldn't have happened. So yeah. I, I think, you know, if we go back through history and look at, we look at all the conflicts that were uh, fought out instead of talked out because somebody thought that they could call in a U.S. airstrike, uh, I think it'd be quite depressing. Yeah. All right. Well, I've, I've kept you over an hour, so I want to let you go. But uh, why don't you tell people where they can find your work? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, Prof Stange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. I also do videos on Rumble under the same. And of course, the uh, at the Heritage Foundation, visit us. We got a bunch of based economists over there. We have a really good team now. It's heck of a lot better than the last bailout. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. And I encourage you to subscribe, give this one a like and and share it with your family and friends. It's a very important podcast. I think I, I learned a lot. Uh, today and um, this story is evolving and everything we talked about uh, with regard to the Austrian, Austrian business cycle will, will be extremely important for everyone to know and explain to others because as Peter said, uh, uh, our officials think that we have fifth grade knowledge and we need to demonstrate that we don't and we need to push back. Um, but thank you so much for being here and uh, we'll, we'll have to talk to you later. All right, Liam. Thank All you. Right.